The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So over the, la- the course of the last few weeks that I've been here, um, I've been exploring understanding delusion. And I'm just going to continue that exploration today, um, give a little bit of, a, of an overview just to kind of set the context and um, for those of you who haven't been hearing all of these uh, reflections on delusion, there's a lot to say around delusion. I think I'm on talk number four or five at this point. Um, and I have at least three more, <laughs> at least three more in this, in this. so um, uh, I like to think about, I mean, delusion often people feel like is inherently we can't be mindful of delusion or we can't recognize delusion by its very nature. That, uh, people might think that it's not possible to really recognize delusion, at least while it's happening. Um, and I'd like to um, offer some teaching, some explorations on how we might begin to actually recognize delusion while it's happening begin to understand the ways in which we are caught by delusion and uh, begin to counter those tendencies. Because a lot of our being caught in delusion is habits, patterns of mind. It's uh, kind of our conditioning of how we've, how we've uh, been in the world in the past and we just don't see it. We don't see how we are in relationship to the world. And that, that itself is a form of delusion, not seeing how we are in relationship to the world. And so there's three, um, three I like to break up delusion into three categories to explore it. And uh, we've talked about the first two. Uh, the, first, the first category is kind of what I'd call the most basic or in some ways most obvious, but also hardest to be mindful for, um, that of disconnection from experience. When we're not mindful, that's a form of delusion at work. When we're disconnected from experience, um, when we're um, just not present. There's a lot of states of mind that are associated with this. For example, sleepiness, dullness, restlessness, um, boredom, often these states are, are related to being disconnected from, to experience or create a disconnection from experience. So sleepiness, for example, often will create a disconnection from experience. And so part of the exploration around um, delusion in this aspect, I mean, we can't be mindful when we're not mindful. It takes waking up again to be mindful. But in that waking up, in the moment of waking up, we begin to see, first of all, a kind of a sense of what it was like to be caught. It was what it was like to not be mindful. Because in that moment when, when mindfulness returns, there's a, a lingering memory of what it was like to just be checked out, to not be connected with experience. And so we can begin to, almost in retrospect, understand what the, what the disconnected state is. And then there's also a lot of views that we have about certain states of mind, like sleepiness, like restlessness, like boredom, 
mostly, um, I'd say, around low-energy states, more than high-energy states, but around certain low-energy states, spacing out, sleepiness, dullness, um, that kind of state. We have beliefs that it's not possible to be mindful while sleepy or while low-energy or uh, while spacing out. And that is actually not true. (laughs) It is possible for the mind to become aware and know this mind is a sleepy mind. This mind is a mind that's spacing out. And in that, again, we begin to see, like, when I recognize spaced out mind, part of what I recognize there is that the mind has created, it's like a buffer between itself and experience in the world. It's created a place where it can, it can rest in uh, disconnection. And yet the mind can be aware of that experience of being stepped back or being disconnected. And so that's, that's another way that we can begin to explore delusion, to begin to explore states of mind in which we typically think it's not possible to be mindful if you, if you have that thought at any time about any state, it's not possible to be mindful while this is happening, while X is happening. I would encourage you not to believe that thought because uh, in, my own, in my own practice over and over again, any time I've been curious rather than feeling like, oh, well, not possible to be mindful of that and instead turning around well, how might it be possible? Every time I've been able to make inroads. And so it's, it's like the mindfulness can begin to infiltrate those states of mind where we think it's not possible to be mindful. So that's that first area, the, the disconnected, the, the, the area of delusion where we're just not present. It's like, you know, it's like we're, we're asleep while being awake. It's, it's like our mind is just not really relating to what's happening in, in the world. The second area of delusion that I've talked about in the last few weeks is um, the area of views, of um, kind of perspectives that we bring to our lives that we don't, aren't consciously aware of. That we're, that we're not aware are, we're holding. And so we may be aware of what's going on in the world. So it's not that we're disconnected. It's not that we're not aware. There can be uh, a, a knowing of what's happening while it's happening. And yet there's, there's often, I would say, a, a view or a perspective that is influencing how we are meeting the world. And so this is a little bit more of a of a, a little bit more an insidious kind of delusion. It, it sneaks in the back door and it um, alters or influences how we take in experience. There's a lot of this kind of delusion in our own personal conditioning and that's what I've talked about uh, in the last few weeks is the, the kind of our personal conditioning, the p- conditioning that we've had from our families, from our um, you know, our education from our uh, cultures um, that we're each, we each have our own set of views we walk around with, our own, our own set of views that some of them are personal views, some of them come from our own particular um, upbringing 
and how we were related to, um, you know, I, t- I think I talked about the story of having, um, you know, I have, I'm nearsighted. My eyes are, are pretty nearsighted. And so um, uh, when I was um, in first grade, before they discovered I was so nearsighted, uh, the teachers knew that they needed to put me in the front row. And so there I was, you know, they put me in the front row. And so this was conditioning for me. I was always in the front row in the classroom from the time I was, you know, in a kindergarten through, you know, fourth grade. And I also was very short. So, you know, that was a, a good place for me to be able to see the board. Um, but the teachers put me there and, and th- that was a, a, a form of conditioning. You know, I got comfortable in the front row. And, uh, you know, as I, as I went on in my life, um, pretty much any time I entered into a situation where there was a kind of a, a place where there was a speaker and chairs, I would put myself in the front row. And it, it took me a long time to realize that that was conditioning. You know, it wasn't something about me that like, I, I mean, I had like made up this story, like it means I'm really interested in what's going on or, and maybe I was interested in what's going on, but the, 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 the conditioning aspect of being put in the front row is what made me comfortable there. And so I think a lot of these, these personal views, some of them are personal like that, others are cultural. You know, others are, are, you know, so much of how we live our lives from how close we stand to somebody that we don't know when we first meet them, how much eye contact we make, whether we make physical contact or not. Those kinds of things, those cultural kinds of things are views that we hold very deeply in our system. Views about um, who we are, what we're capable of, views about who others are, what they're capable of. These are all conditioned views, um, um, explorations around the, um, uh, the ways we create a sense of self and other around economic differences, um, differences in skin color, differences in sexual orientation, differences in gender orientation, all of those things that we, we carry based on enculturation. And we apply them to our relationships often without being aware of them. And so in meeting somebody, we, we may be mindful, we may be aware when we meet them. We may know that we're talking and seeing. And yet what we may not be aware of is a lot of the enculturation, a lot of the views, a lot of the agendas and opinions that are operating in the background. And so this is another form of delusion, the not being aware of what's operating in the background. This is a huge area of suffering in our world. How much, how much um, war has been uh, fought in the name of um, religious perspectives, religious views, you know, that, that, that when people hold to their views and are, you know, think of them as this is truth, this is the only way it should be in the world, we, we run up against conflict, and conflict creates a lot of suffering in our world. We have this kind of um, uh, suffering around um, you know, seeing how we separate 
from from each other and you know the sense of creating other based on um, economic condition based on gender orientation sexual orientation skin color all of those all of those views that we have are often unnoticed so this is another area of exploration and it's you know the, the the a piece about this kind of delusion is that it doesn't mean that we're not we're not seeing what's happening but instead what happens what tends to happen is um, what is called in psychology these days confirmation bias that we hold a view we hold a perspective and we tend to seek out information that confirms that view or that bias and we tend to actually also ignore information that doesn't confirm that bias, that view. And so that, uh, that is delusion. That we are unaware that that's happening. It, it's a natural thing. It's a human tendency for that to happen. But we can, we can know, knowing that this is a tendency that we have, we can begin to counter it. We can begin to be curious about, okay, well, well, first of all, we have to become aware of our views. That's the first step, become aware that we are carrying views. And then begin to, um, to counter those, uh, those views with other, uh, other tools to begin to you know, be curious. Maybe, maybe about um, looking for things that would disconfirm our views instead of things that confirm our views. Or maybe just kind of shaking up the mind away from its habitual orientation to, uh, to a different orientation. In one um, book that I was reading, it's a wonderful book about um, looking at our uh, biases around uh, race and racism. It's called Deep Diversity um, and it's, it's a fantastic book, and it brings a lot of the tools of mindfulness to this exploration. Um, and so um, uh, I was reading that book and noticing my own you know, biases around uh, seeing people of different races. And at one point, there was a, uh, there was a, in the book, there's a, in a, a suggestion for when you see somebody that you have a kind of a habitual a relationship with based on conditioning try just dropping in a simple question that takes you more that makes you more curious about them as a human being as opposed to as opposed to as um somebody other and the question that that the the author proposed uh, and the author's name of the book is Shaquille Choudhury um it's a he's a Canadian author um the, the question he proposed is I wonder what kind of vegetables they like. I started playing with this question, and it was amazingly powerful. You know, so first thing it takes is some mindfulness to recognize that there's a little bit of, that there's a, a view operating, and then countering that with a question. And, the, and to me, what that question is designed to do is to break down the, 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 the barriers or the, it's, it's, it, you become curious about the person instead of automatically separating from the person. And so this is, these are some tools around, um, around the, uh, 
the views, the exploration of views, our personal views, our conditioned views, our enculturated views. So this is another big area of how delusion works. Again, it's not, it's not necessary in this case for us to not be mindful, but it's, it's like we're, we're carrying a filter around in, in the back of our mind and we're seeing things through that filter, taking certain things in and not other things in. And the delusion there is not being aware or is kind of believing that we're taking things in accurately. That we, we, believing that we don't have a, a filter, we don't have a bias. That's the delusion. We almost always are functioning with some kind of bias or some kind of view. And so beginning to be curious. And a great question there is, what am I believing right now? To begin to, uh, to, to, begin to let some of those views come to the surface. So that's the second kind of delusion. The third kind of delusion is what I would call more human delusion. It is, um, it's de- these are delusions we all share as human beings. It's regardless of culture, regardless of family, we tend to share certain delusions. Partly, I think, because of the way our organism is built. We tend to share these delusions. And the, the three, basic, three basic delusions that um, the Buddha pointed to, we tend to, as human beings, take what is impermanent to be permanent. We tend to take what is unreliable as a source for happiness, as a, as a place to find happiness, we tend to take what's unreliable to be reliable. And we tend to take what is not self, what is not I, me, or mine, to be I, me, or mine. And so these are the next three talks I'd like to explore, is how delusion works in in each of these areas. And so today, looking at impermanence, looking at how we take what is impermanent as permanent, and how we can begin to shake that human perspective up a little bit and begin to recognize the impermanent nature of experience. And so we, we do know that things change at some level. We know that things change. Um, there's a fun poem, actually, that points to this. Let's see if I can find that. So this poem is called The Niagara River. It's by Kay Ryan. As though the river were a floor, we position our tables and chairs upon it, eat and have conversation. As it moves along, we notice, as calmly as though dining room paintings were being replaced, the changing scenes along the shore. 
We do know, we do know this is the Niagara River. But it is hard to remember what that means. And so this is how we relate to change often in our lives. We do know we are going to die at some level. We do know that aging happens. We do know that sickness happens. And yet, when these things happen, we feel like either we failed, made a mistake, screwed up somehow, or fatally flawed, or that somehow the universe betrayed us. That somehow there's something fundamentally wrong with the universe. So we either impute some kind of error to ourselves or to the universe, as opposed to recognizing this is nature. This is the way it is. And so one of the first things to begin to recognize is, again, how often we deny or just don't look at, just don't take in impermanence. There's another quote from uh, a great Indian epic poem called the Mahabharata. And one of the characters in that, it's it's kind of a, it's almost like a play. And if you get a chance, there's actually a wonderful, um, a wonderful uh, uh, enactment of that poem called the Mahabharata by Peter Brook. And it was, it was done in a movie form and it's, it's quite long. I think it's a three or four part movie it's like eight hours or something so you can watch it in pieces Um, and one of the characters in that poem at one point um, um, is is being challenged by uh, an invisible deity and this um, this invisible deity asks is asking is challenging him and is basically gonna gonna um, kill him if he doesn't answer correctly Um, what is the greatest wonder So the deity is asking this character, what is the greatest wonder? And the the person responds that every, every person must one day die, yet everyone lives as if they were immortal. This is the greatest wonder. Only the surface mind understands the language. The actual sense never goes into our heads. This is the greatest wonder. That we're faced with this truth of impermanence daily. It, it's staring us in the face. It's, it, these, this kind, these kind of views, these three kind of views, impermanent, unreliable, not self, also function very like the, um, the views that we pick up in conditioning. You know, it's like they're filters. They're deeper levels of filters on our experience. And, and even though... <clears throat> though 
we see or there's the possibility of seeing the evidence of our own mortality, our own aging, (laughs) that's facing us everywhere, we do not take it in. The actual sense of that truth does not go in. And so we're, we're seeing our lives through this filter of, basically, I'm immortal. Not going to happen to me. I mean, we know that's not true at some level. But deep inside, you'll see that that's not how we engage in the world. So it's difficult to take in this truth of impermanence. It's, you know, that what we can start to do is begin to recognize and, and a simple reflection, the Buddha actually encourages a simple reflection around impermanence. In the um, Theravada tradition, this is understood as subjects good for frequent recollection. I'm of the nature to age. I am of the nature to sicken. I am of the nature to die. And essentially recognizing when we hear about aging, illness, and death. You know, actually that, that, and we hear about it daily. We hear about it daily. It's easy to push it away when it's happening on the other side of the planet or in Pennsylvania or, um, or you know, down the street. It, 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 it's, it's, much, it's much easier to push it aside if it's not happening directly to myself or a loved one. It's much easier to, to separate from it. And yet, in a daily way, we can recognize when we hear these kinds of things, we hear these kinds of stories, acknowledge or recognize, yes, I too am subject to that possibility. And daily we hear about car accidents and um, people being uh, or having heart attacks or dying from cancer or it's it's just it's everywhere. It's everywhere, and a simple reflection: this too, this might be me. Partly what that does, it not only begins to undermine that perspective that I'm immortal, that kind of deeply held perspective that I'm immortal, it also begins to connect us to our fellow human beings with that human recognition. We are all, it's not just about me. We are all this vulnerable. We are all this tenuous, fleeting being in the world. This kind of reflection, reflecting on our own death, you know, if we, if we regularly reflect on our own death, even just bringing it into mind, reminding ourselves, yes, I am of the nature to die. My family is of the nature to die. One... Um, <clears throat> One spiritual teacher, Carlos Castaneda, some of you may have heard of Carlos Castaneda, um, at one, one gathering, apparently, one of the people in the gathering said to Carlos, uh, I find it really hard 
to connect to a spiritual life. And um, Carlos Castaneda responded, Then reflect regularly that you, your family, your parents, your children, your friends, your relatives, will all die and in no particular order. You will soon have a spiritual life. It connects us to the, this, this reflection of our own death and the death of others connects us to the, the fleeting nature of our existence, begins to connect us in part to how do I want to live in this fleeting world? How do I want to live in this fleeting existence? It, it seems like it might be depressing to reflect on impermanence. You know, that, that's our, that's the surface mind thinks that. Our surface mind thinks, I don't want to reflect that I'm going to die. I'll just get depressed. It'll just bum me out. <clears throat> and we also think, if I just think I'm going to die, then, then I won't want to do anything. But what I've seen is actually just the opposite of all of those. When I bring death to mind, when I know this life is fleeting, I have no idea whether I'm going to make it home today. I actually have no idea whether I'm going to leave here today. When I reflect on that, it's not depressing. It actually inspires me to connect to what is most important to me. It inspires me to live my life more fully, more meaningfully, than just going through thinking I've got, well, I've got another 35 years left in this body. That's a long time. If I think, I don't even know if I've got another second left in this body, I want to make this moment mean something. I want to be here for it. And so this reflection on impermanence, reflecting on our aging, our sickness, our death, this is the obvious level of impermanence that's available to us. We can reflect on this easily. And it can begin to make some inroads into this kind of delusion. There are different levels of impermanence, this most obvious kind being uh, you know, the, the easiest one to connect with, perhaps with reflection. As we um, begin to be more in tune with our actual experience in meditation, we touch into some deeper levels of impermanence or more maybe influx levels of impermanence. It's, I think part of the reason why it's harder to recognize the impermanent nature of, of um of our lives is because we've been going on for as long as we've been going on. You know, it's like we've, there's been, it's, it's been here for all this time. Why shouldn't it be here for all the next time? It's, so we've, we've created this idea of a, of a kind of an, uh, an ongoing process that doesn't seem like it's likely to stop anytime soon. Um, so that some of these, uh, some of these reflections around aging, sickness, death, uh, they, 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 they can be done in the, um, in the immediate moment level when we actually hear about aging, sickness, and death and, and remind ourselves, that too, that might be me. And so connecting with the actual experience of really taking in somebody else's death or somebody else's illness 
and, and realizing that might be me. There is a, there's an experience there. We begin to, re, uh, begin to recognize what our relationship is to that truth. And this is very useful to recognize our relationship to that and begin to explore that relationship. And, and as we become more curious about being present for our experience, noticing what's happening in our lives, what's going on moment to moment, we begin to see there's a lot of change going on. You know, there's, there's uh, you know, change within ourselves, change outside. You know, there's there, nothing, nothing, nothing lasts for very long, but, um, you know, things seem to, like this building seems to be quasi-stable. It's pretty stable. I mean, it wouldn't take too much to, to uh, have it vanish. Uh, you know, a, a fire, a, a plane crash into it, or, you know, so it's, we know that it's, it's, it's not really permanent. Just if we let it go, if we just stopped maintaining it, eventually the redwood tree outside, its roots would grow up and it would begin to decay the, the building. So, you know, we know, we know that it's, it's kind of impermanent. And so, you know, beginning to touch into the ways in which everyday impermanence shows itself to us. This is another level. So, um, um, you know, noticing how, for instance, our, um, our bodies change. You know, how, how uh, you know, one day we feel, we feel good, another day we feel tired. And so, you know, the, the changing uh, kind of moods and mind states that come along with being a human being. You know, we impute a kind of a permanent underlying sense of me experiencing all these changing things. But we can begin to recognize that moods and emotions in particular are very fluid. We tend to um, identify or we tend to um, believe in some, to some extent in the, like for instance, I, uh, I um, have a history in my life of having a lot of anger. A lot of that being a kind of conditioned experience in my life. And... Uh, I, I, I initially kind of thought that what was going on was like I had this permanent like pool of anger and just every now and then it's like I dropped into that pool. Um, and what I... Uh, so that, it was kind of like I was imputing a kind of permanence to that anger. So even when I wasn't angry or miserable, that was another way this manifested itself. Even when I wasn't miserable... There was my mind saying something like, well, yeah, but I know what I am is really miserable. You know, so even if I was happy, you know, if I was happy, it's like, well, I'm happy now, but I know that what I am is really miserable. Um, And so there was an imputation of a kind of permanent nature or kind of solid nature to some of my habitual emotions and moods. And... um, as I started to meditate and began to recognize that sometimes anger was there, sometimes it wasn't, sometimes miserable was there, sometimes it wasn't, I began noticing actually the absence of my habitual patterns. 
This is, in a way, beginning to recognize the impermanent nature of our moods, our emotions. I began to see that actually those emotions are created in the moment. It's not like there's a a pool of anger. There are some tendencies in the mind. I think I understand this to be the, the, the neuronal, like, wirings you know there's probably there's some there's some patterns that are wired that tend to to fire but when that pattern is not firing it's not just sitting there waiting actually it is there's there's a way in which it's sitting there waiting but the way our brains work what i understand from neuroplasticity is if that pattern sits there for long enough and is not engaged in those neurons, basically, are the, the way our brains work is those neurons say, well, this one must not be important anymore. Let's rewire. And so the, the non-engagement with, the, the beginning to recognize the, the, the pattern of um, the, our habitual patterns is sometimes being present, sometimes not being present, supports the beginning of the rewiring of that pattern. And so the... The impermanent nature of our own emotional um, habits and patterns, really useful to start to see. It begins to poke holes in our beliefs around those, those habitual patterns, habitual emotions. Sometimes they come up and it feels like, oh, I'm going to be depressed forever, you know? Or this is, this is how it's going to be for the rest of whatever, a week or month. That's, in a way, imputing a kind of permanence. If we actually start looking at our emotions, we, we begin... And, and it's, it's non-awareness, <clears throat> in a way, when, when we're um, partly, and so partly the way that this works is that when we impute a permanence to certain kinds of emotional states, it's like our habit of confirmation bias uh, has us recognize when we're experiencing those things and not as, not as much recognizing when we're not experiencing them. And so the imputation of kind of like, well, I've been miserable for the last three months. I've been depressed for the last three months. I'm going to be depressed for the next three months. Exploring in your moment-to-moment experience, is that actually true? Am I depressed constantly? Or is there some change to that? Again, so this imputation of permanence creates a a kind of suffering around our, um, especially our reactive emotions, those ones that we we feel like are... are, um, are challenging, that have a hold on us, begin to recognize when they're not happening. Begins to punch through the delusion that they are constant. And so if you've got a period or a stretch of time where it feels like, I've been been depressed for a week, start looking for the next week at the fluctuations in that state you may find that there are actually moments, they may be brief, but there, there are actually, maybe there are actually moments when for a few moments, there's a lifting of that. There's a delight in something that you see or hear. And so taking that in, punching holes in the idea of the permanent nature of those states. 
And then at a subtler level, an even subtler level, impermanence is just a feature of every split second of experience. This is this becomes this is harder to see, and again, partly based on our human uh, our human uh, apparatus, our sense experience. There are ways in which our sense experience is designed to create stability in our world. It's designed to create, like for instance, as I look around this room, you know, I can I I. I what comes into my eyes is this like rapidly changing, like, you know, dynamic, uh, shifting experience. It's like different, different images, moment after moment. No one of them is the same. And yet my experience isn't that this room is like jumping around and changing. My experience is that there's a stability here. So this is part of the way our perceptual apparatus works to create this sense of stability. And this helps us to navigate the world. Absolutely helps us to navigate the world. Thank goodness I can, you know, like get up and walk through that spot in the chairs without bumping into it, even as I'm looking in various other ways. I don't, you know, it's like our our perceptual apparatus serves us to navigate the world. And yet, the delusion associated with it is that we impute a permanence to our experience based on this perceptual apparatus. Essentially, you know, as I look around the room and uh, that in the, eye, in the eye field, there's actually this incredibly dynamic shifting and I can kind of see it. It makes me a little dizzy when I orient to it. And so I think this is part of the reason why our, our mind tends to orient to the concept level of experience. What we actually meet as we explore experience a lot, what we're actually taking in or relating to are the concepts rather than the actual experience. And this is where the delusion comes in. Because concepts, when they're not seen as concepts, concepts often hold a lot of baggage. They hold a lot of ideas, views, opinions. And so we're not only seeing our experience through a concept, we're seeing it through the concept plus our views about the concept. And so in, you know, going back to the example around um, economic uh, disparity, for example, you know, a view around that, you know, seeing somebody who is homeless, for instance, um, seeing that person, there's, there's not only the seeing, it's not just seeing, and it's not just seeing a person. It's seeing a person as a homeless person and seeing a person at, with perhaps baggage that comes along with that. Beliefs, views, ideas, how they became homeless, what, what, what they do, how they engage, wh- why, you know, why they either deserve that or don't deserve that. All kinds of views come in in that relationship. And very similarly in our relationship just to this rapidly changing nature of experience, the, the basically the view that we're seeing things as 
they actually are is a form of delusion because things are changing so rapidly. How much time is there? I think I've got time for this example. Um, Partly the way our... I talked about the the kind of shifting uh, slideshow nature of looking around the room and um, how the mind creates a kind of stability or solidity around that. Uh, There was an example of this that I saw. It was a a pretty amazing example of how how powerful this uh, creation of the illusion of solidity is in our minds at the Exploratorium in San Francisco. This was a number of years ago. I don't know if the exhibit is still up or not. I haven't been in a number of years. Um, But I went with my nephew... um, who was 10 years old at the time. And we walked into the Exploratorium and, you know, just kind of this big kind of cavernous room and all the little exhibits around. And one thing was up on the ceiling, these flashing lights on bars. There were these flashing lights on bars hanging hanging on the ceiling. And, and I looked up at that and just saw flashing lights on the bars and I thought, huh, I wonder that, what that is. I'll have to check that out later. And um, the way the bars were hung, they were, you know, they were probably maybe six feet tall or maybe taller. I don't know. They were pretty high up. So they they were pretty big, you know, maybe six to ten foot long rods hanging from the ceiling. Um, And there there were maybe about 15 or 20 of those rods hanging, probably about three or four feet apart. So... Rods hanging from the ceiling. And on each rod there were flashing lights for the whole length of the rod. So that's kind of the, what I saw when I first walked in. Kind of a bunch of just randomly flashing lights on these rods hanging from the ceiling. And then my nephew and I sat down for a little while to have a drink. And, um, and, I, and I noticed he was looking up at the rods. And, uh, and he said, oh, it's a school bus. And I said, I looked up and I saw a bunch of like yellow flashing lights and a little bit of red flashing. I thought, well, what? <laughs> I see it's kind of the color of lights that it would be if it was a school bus, but I don't see a school bus. And, uh, and then he said, oh, it's butterflies. And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, and, and at some point I, I stopped and I just like, okay, I want to see what's going on here. And it took some kind of a relaxation of the eyes. But what happened as the, as the eyes began to relax is um, that essentially what appeared in midair was a movie screen. And across that movie screen was driving a school bus. The detail that I could see in that visual image was uh, good enough for me to read the name of the school district on the side of the school bus. And, and then it changed to butterflies. <laughs> you know, then there were butterflies flying across the, the screen. Um, I knew, so I knew that there was not a screen up there. 
And yet the illusion was so powerful that the mind created that kind of permanence or that illusion of the, of the permanence. This is, I mean, part of this is, again, it's just the way our, our, um, our system, it works, that it will uh, create that kind of continuity on moment-to-moment, just little blips of information. With moment-to-moment little blips of information, our mind can construct a world. But what's constructed is constructed in our minds. Everything, absolutely everything we experience, all that we know of it is what our minds create. And this again is how this delusion is so powerful because we do not understand that everything, absolutely everything we experience that I come in contact with is is a creation of, of my mind. Everything that we each come in contact with, everything that we experience is created by our minds. And because of that, there is this real doorway when we're not aware that we are perceiving things in this very uh, dynamic way. It's very easy for views, opinions, ideas, agendas to slip in and influence or skew how we are taking in that information. And so in terms of this kind of impermanence masked as permanence, the, uh, the exploration I like to engage in is to begin to look at or recognize what am I taking to be solid what am I taking to have some kind of solidity? Even, even in my meditation experience, this is a, this is a, a helpful place to, to play with it, actually, to begin to see just how dynamically changing everything is. If you pick some particular strong experience of body, for instance, maybe a pain, or maybe even just the pressure of your hips against the chair or cushion or bench, feels kind of solid. Feels kind of, you know, it's like, But if you start to actually touch into the actual experience of that, we begin to recognize it's not hips on chair that we're actually experiencing. That's the concept, hips on chair. When we experience it as hips on chair, it feels pretty solid. But what actually is going on is this very dynamic uh, tingling, pulsing, vibrating experience that has very little solidity to it. We can begin to get underneath the concept to recognize what is actually happening moment to moment is very dynamic, is very impermanent. Again, you know, the the purpose of this in terms of um, our practice and our spiritual life is that as we begin to really deeply touch into the impermanent nature, not only of uh, the moment-to-moment experience, but of our lives, of, of, you know, that we are mortal, it begins to really 
um, open us to the human nature of our experience. As we, as we touch into the, the, the rapidly changing experience, we recognize this isn't about me. This is not, this is not personal. As we begin to really acknowledge and recognize, yes, this human body is subject to death, we realize it's not about me. It's not personal. We realize that holding on and trying to control, manipulate, to fix things so that I never die is doomed as a project to failure. That we're holding on to things that are unreliable. And in this way, pointing to the, the other kinds of delusions that or misperceptions the Buddha points to, these other two kind of misperceptions, the unreliability of experience, taking what's unreliable to be reliable, taking what's not self to be self. In many ways, those... Uh, those misperceptions are based on the more fundamental misperception around impermanence. And so seeing impermanence in and of itself may seem like, well, okay, you know, yeah, I get impermanence, but what it supports for us is a movement in the direction of letting go, of trying to hold on to things that are not a place, a reliable place for lasting happiness. Because so much of our suffering results from trying to hold on to something that is just slipping through our fingers. Or so much suffering comes along from imputing a sense of me or I am to something and feeling like we have to somehow maintain or control that perception of this is who I am. So much suffering for me came from like, you know, I counteracted a whole pattern of self-hatred with an I'm really competent pattern. And any time the, you know, the self-competence was revealed to be impermanent because I couldn't be continuously competent, I would shift into a kind of depression around being a failure. So, so our identification with our kind of imputing something to be I or me or my, another big way in which we suffer. And so this is, the, this is the point of this exploration, really, to begin to recognize the ways in which this misperception creates the conditions for struggle, stress, unease. And as, as we begin to see through that misperception, it's not... Again, it's, it's paradoxically not depressing that everything is impermanent. It actually creates a lot of freedom, a lot of ease and happiness in our lives when we let go of trying to control, trying to hold on to. So, well, I'm, it's 11, so need to stop. Thank you for your attention. Next week, unreliability.